Well, we come this evening for our scripture reading to Revelation chapter 1, and we're going to read the first three verses and then jump over to verse 9 and read through to the end of the chapter. When Pastor Bob asked if I'd minister tonight, uh, I didn't want to gatecrash Thanksgiving. I didn't want to gatecrash Advent. So I thought on this one-off occasion, it would be a good opportunity for us to uh, look at something uh, current and to do so in light of the Word of God. And specifically coming to my mind was the uh, restrictions that the Apostle John knew on the Isle of Patmos and what we can learn of uh, God's blessing of that restriction to him. And we trust that... uh, Our restrictions will be limited to COVID and not also on account of persecution. But it's given to us to hide in our hearts the Word of God so that the principles that we bring out of Scripture may be applicable both to this COVID situation, but should uh, things carry on the way they're going, that we might find strength and fortitude in the midst of our spiritual battle against the forces that are arrayed against the church at this time. So let us hear God's word as we read Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 3 and 9 to 20. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near." I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. 
As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. May God bless this reading of his holy word. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this portion of your word that was read and heard read tonight. Grant that your spirit would bless that under our hearts and draw us in closer fellowship with thee. Pray that you'll be with Dr. Trumper tonight as he gives us the message. Pray that you'll give him your words to speak, that we would hear what you have to say to us tonight, that we would apply it to our lives, and that it would be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the title of our message this evening is Being Christian During COVID. And I'm sure that I'm not alone in noticing that when this pandemic first broke out, it was called COVID-19. And here we are at the end of 2020, which means it's also COVID-20, and it's going to be COVID-21 as well. And so we have time and opportunity, uh, God being our helper, to consider what we might learn for our own profit, for our own witness, as we come to God's word this evening. It's evident that there are two responses to the COVID pandemic. The one is practical and medical. And we hear much of that, and rightly so, understandably so, in the media from day to day. Keeping up with the statistics, keeping up with the arguments about how to deal responsibly with this pandemic. Two things are clear from Scripture, and with this I'm going to stop so far as the practical and the medical are concerned, that one, we have a responsibility to pray for our leaders, whether it be in the church or whether it be in the state. The second thing, we have responsibility also to honor our leaders, both in the church and in the state, insofar as they remain within the teaching of the Scripture. And so I want to say that uh, prayer and obedience are not conditioned upon our liking or even our agreement with our leaders in the church or in the state, but rather we pray and we obey out of love for God, and our response is unto Him. But the response that I want us to focus on tonight is the spiritual response, for we have focused less upon this in the nation and even internationally. What is God doing through COVID-19, now into 20 and soon into 21, in the church, through the church, in society? What is God doing? What is God up to? I'm going to quote somebody tonight who was chief of staff in 2008. I don't suppose you've been counting since the last time you heard Rahm Emanuel quoted from this pulpit. But in 2008, he said this, let no crisis go to waste. And I'm not focusing upon why he said that or the circumstances in which he said that, but we follow a God who lets no crisis go to waste. And so we have an opportunity tonight in this one-off sermon to ask, what might God be doing in my personal life, our lives, through this pandemic, which has been surreal to say the least? That you can go from one end of the world to the other. And you can see people affected 
by what is going on. Whether they have had COVID themselves, whether they have known people who've lost and been died, died through COVID, or whether they are affected in their economies, in their businesses, or in their life and their personal liberties. And I want to say then that God in his kindness is very much involved with this. We do not worship a deist God, whereby God winds things up and then he lets world history unfold without any intervention in history. But God ordains all things whatsoever that come to pass. That is our belief as Reformed and Presbyterian believers. And it may well be, if God is true to what he often does in Scripture, and that is recorded, he may well be sifting the church, and he may well not remove this pandemic until, in the words of Hebrews 12, we as God's people, looking no further than the church, bring forth the peaceable fruit of righteousness through what we experience in the tribulations of this pandemic. It's very easy, isn't it, to look first of all about what God is doing in the world. But first of all, we look to our own house and ask ourselves, what is God doing in the church through this situation? And so for our spiritual prophet tonight, we turn to Revelation 1 and John's experience of lockdown and the vision he received amidst his quarantine there on the Isle of Patmos. And for this vision, first of all, by way of context, we give thanks to God the Father, verse 1. Notice the heavenly context of the vision. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. When you come to the name God in the New Testament, the reference is typically to God the Father. If Jesus Christ is in view of, as God the Son, then he is identified as God the Son or God the Spirit. But when there's simply the name God, it is God the Father who is in view. And notice what the verse says, that this revelation, namely the whole book, but specifically tonight, this vision, is about Jesus Christ, which God gave to Jesus Christ to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And the idea of soon there is that when they take place, they will take place quickly. And then we thank God the Son for this vision. Notice the second half of verse 1. He, that is Jesus Christ, made it known by sending his angel or messenger to his servant John. Well, where is John? Well, we notice from verse 9 then that John is exiled on the island of Patmos. Brenda and I had the opportunity to go to Patmos in 2012 it's 20 miles off what is today Turkey, the western coast of what was then Asia. And it's a little rocky isle of four miles by eight miles. It's very hilly. And here John was found. And it's in the midst of his sufferings that he has given this vision. Now, we do not know what exactly John's experience was on the Isle of Patmos. Some of the commentators think that despite the fact that by now he is an elderly man, He's probably involved in digging the quarries for the Romans. And yet, in his aloneness, he finds that he is not alone. 
For he has granted this revelation, literally this apocalypse, this unveiling of what is going to happen for his encouragement and for the encouragement of the church. He's not there because of some pandemic. He's there, we are told, for the testimony because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The context seems to be, and this is the political context, that the emperor Domitian towards the end of the first century, had passed an edict which said that everybody must worship the reigning emperor. Well, if you are already committed to worship Christ as king of kings, then it is a non-negotiable conflict then to be called to worship the reigning emperor. And in all possibility, John refused, and as the leader of the church, the last surviving apostle was sent off onto this island for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And yet he's given this revelation, sent to him from God the Father, by Jesus Christ, through the angel or the messenger, so that he, in his circumstances of oppression, and persecution can be comforted, not only with regard to himself, but also with regard to the church then. And then thirdly, by way of context, we thank God the Spirit, verse 10. This is the spiritual context. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. God the Spirit then enabled John to hear things which otherwise he would not have been able to hear and to see things that otherwise he would not have been able to see. Notice it does not say, the text does not say that he was full of the Holy Spirit. It says that he was in the Spirit, which is a reference to the fact that although he was an apostle, the last surviving apostle, he is functioning here as a prophet, Notice how verse 3 in the chapter begins. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Now, when does he receive this prophecy? Well, we're told it's the Lord's day. This is a marvelous testimony to the fact that Christ Jesus is raised again from the dead. Because in celebrating that resurrection, they change what was non-negotiable under the old covenant. The day of rest from the last day of the week to the first day of the week to notify the massive, massive significance of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But when John describes the Lord's day here, he's saying that it belongs to the Lord and it does not belong to Caesar. And it's so typical of God that while his servant is alone, oppressed, exiled, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, that God himself comes on the Lord's day with this wonderful vision of his highly exalted son, Jesus Christ. And so as he's going through the Lord's day, we don't know what he was doing at the time, In the Isle of Patmos today, the Orthodox Church have this cave. And they say, well, this is where we believe the vision was given. And you walk into this dark cave. And there's a crack in the roof of the cave. 
And the tour guide says, well, you see, this is what happened. The cave opened up. And that's how he saw the vision. And then see this little hole in the wall here with this silver strip around it. Well, you see, John's head was resting against the rock. And as he saw the vision, so it burned a hole in the rock. Well, we don't find any of that in Scripture. What we do find, though, is this integral connection between this final book of the Bible and all that has gone before. For when John hears this voice as a loud trumpet, his mind as a Jew would have gone back to the Old Testament. It would have gone back to Mount Sinai. And what happened there? As God calls his newly redeemed people out of Egypt, he calls them with a long trumpet blast to come to the foot of the mountain and there he speaks to them. So when John then hears this voice as the sound of a trumpet or hears this trumpet sound, he knows that revelation is coming to him. I want to say to us this evening that although we are not in the Spirit because we do not function as prophets, yet God has also given us the Lord's Day, a tremendous day in which we can seek to be filled afresh with the Spirit. When you're in the Spirit as a prophet, you are an agent giving the revelation. But when you are full of the Holy Spirit, you are enabled to hear things from the revelation already given, you're able to see things in the words, the revelation already given that you do not see or hear when we are walking afar from Christ. So against the background then of this uh, context, this threefold context, the heavenly context, the political context, and the spiritual context for which we thank God, we are reminded here of four elements of Christianity which we can draw for our own circumstances of COVID at this time. The first point is that Christianity is a matter of being. And for this, we go back to the first half of verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Do you notice what's missing there? John doesn't describe himself as an apostle. And the reason for that is obvious, that he was very well known to the people to whom he's writing. He's the last surviving apostle. So he doesn't stress his apostleship, for that is what distinguishes him from them. Rather, he says two things about himself, which unites him and them across the waters of the Aegean Sea. The first is that John is their brother. This follows on from the fact that he, like they, had been born again of God's Spirit. This is a tremendous theme within the writings of John. Your mind goes back to John 1, 12 and 13. He had received the right to be God's child, having been born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And then your mind skips forward to that famous conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And Jesus says, unless one is born again, you cannot experience, you cannot enter the kingdom. So John then is one who has entered the kingdom, who has experienced the kingdom. He is a child of the Father, and it is on that basis that he can then write to those on the mainland and call them his brethren. 
And then our mind jumps forward to 1 John 2.29, a few pages back here. Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. This is the evidence of the new birth. It's the practicing of righteousness and the readiness to suffer for our God. And then finally, 1 John 3.1, the privilege of being born again is to know the love of God the Father. Those famous words of the Apostle John, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we might be called the children of God. And that's what we are. So when John here says, listen, I'm your brother. He's saying, I know you to be born again of the Spirit of God. And just as I was born into the kingdom of God, so you have been born into the kingdom of God. You have a new nature And what is entailed by that new nature? Well, you have uh, fresh desires to, to, to know God, to serve God, and you have the ability to follow God by the Spirit. And so when he says, then I am your brother, this is what he's saying. He's saying, you have the same privileges of the new birth as I do. We are bound together as siblings in God's kingdom to resemble their father, our father in heaven. So they're brethren. But, says John, they're also partners. The Greek means to fellowship with. And John gives a short list of um, what they are partnering in. The first is they are partnering in tribulation. The idea of tribulation means stress. Not the stress that everybody in the world has, by dint of being in this fallen world, but the stress specifically on account of being the children of the Father, and the younger brothers of the Lord Jesus. Remember the words of Jesus in John 16, 33. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You will have stress on account of me. Take heart, I have overcome the world. And then there's that marvelous, similar statement with Paul in Acts chapter 14. Imagine this, we often talk about Barnabas being an encourager, but imagine the Apostle Paul. You've just gone to a city to preach the gospel. You've been stoned and left for dead. And then you get up, and then you seek to encourage the brethren, and this is what you say. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. And similarly, we find this spirit here of John. I'm not the exalted apostle. I am an apostle, and it's a privilege. But in these circumstances of suffering and oppression, tribulation, I am your partner. I'm your partner in the stress. And then he goes on to say, I'm your partner in the kingdom. Because as children of the great king, we are not only to resemble him, but to serve the kingdom and suffer for it if and when necessary. And what is more, I'm not only your partner in tribulation in the kingdom, but also in patience. In other words, I, like you, have to be steadfast. I have to be patient. I have to endure. And here is the Apostle John, as an old man, probably wondering, how is this all going to turn out? All the other apostles have been martyred. That doesn't give me great chances to get out of this alive. So would he be released Or would he die under its hardship? So I say to you, as I say to myself this evening, that we are not yet persecuted. But we are to shine 
as Christians in the current restrictions, focusing on being brothers and partners together. You know, God doesn't ordain for us trials and troubles without having purposes of making us more like Christ in the midst of it. And here is John. He's been honed. He's been refined. Elderly though he be, that he might resemble Christ to the church in the midst of all that he is suffering. So being is a most important aspect of being a Christian. But the second thing we notice is that Christianity is a matter of doing, verse 11. The voice comes like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. It's interesting, isn't it, that as isolated as John is, God does not alleviate him from ministry. Quite the opposite, through John, God communicates to him a principle and a ministry. The principle is this, that while we may come aside and rest for a while, as did Jesus, and I refer you to Mark 6 verse 30, our rest is not found in this life. Our rest is after this life. Pastor Bob, going through Hebrews, came to Hebrews 4 recently. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And so while it is appropriate for the Lord's people to come aside and to rest for a while, and some of us actually have benefited from COVID and been refreshed through the rest, I, for one, am thankful that I've not had to walk through too many airports. But despite the fact he's exiled... He's given this commission. And it's the same for us. That although we've tried to post different events and say, well, we're not sure how it's going to turn out, but maybe we can do message and a meal. We're not sure. Maybe we can do Bethlehem Alive. We're not sure. And then we've decided, well, we don't think that's going to be very practical. We don't draw the deduction that because there are certain programs and events that we can't put on, that God has no work for us to do during COVID. Quite the opposite. And this is the proof here. The man is exiled at the end of the first century, an elderly man. And God says, listen, I'm going to use your exile to refine you on the one hand because Christianity is a matter of being, but I'm also going to give you something to do. And in a sense, then tonight, I'm speaking not for those who are present, but for those who are in quarantine or for those who have been shut down for months. And to say that God has work for you to do. God has ministry for you to do as you are able. It might be a different ministry. But here we find the principle that we are saved to serve. And that continues for John on the Isle of Patmos. And then, secondly, in verse 11, we come to the ministry itself, and it's twofold. Notice the verbs that are used there. Write and send. Well, he is to write. Well, he is to write to the churches scattered along the postal route of Western Asia. There's wonderful pastoral wisdom in this. Imagine if you were in John's sandals and you are quarrying a mine for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. You are well past our retirement age. 
Oh, the propensity to become self-centered. Woe is me. Woe is me. Let me share an instance. I used to preach off the west coast of Scotland as a theological student. And we'd catch the ferry and we'd go across the water about two hours on the ferry. And uh, you got off the ferry, you got onto this bus, you were given all these uh, directions, it was somewhat like a film. You get off at the white cottage, you pick up the key, you go next door into this 19th century manse. The food is there, there's nobody to welcome you, the food is there. You put your bags down and then you come to preach the next day. Well, you've come from the city and you're on the island and you've done all you need to do and then you say well what should I do well I will go and walk along the beach and as the darkness comes and you look across the water and you see the lights of the mainland of Scotland and the darkness descends I think wow I really am on my own here now if I could feel that in a situation of freedom what must John have felt like and so God comes in this wonderful mercy and he says, listen, I've got something for you to do. Write. Write everything you hear. Write everything you see. What is God doing? God is in his pastoral wisdom ensuring that John does not turn in on himself, but in the process of ordering the things that he sees, the things that he hears, he is drawn out of himself and he is able to think of those to whom he's writing so he keeps self-centeredness from the door. He doesn't retract in to himself, but he is drawn out of himself to see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and to write but this isn't the sort of ministry where you write a few notes, but they're just for self-help, but you don't send them. He says, send them to the seven churches. So not only is he ministering to himself, he's ministering to those to whom he writes. And oh, how encouraging that would be for them. One, to know that John is still alive, and two, to know that God has visited him in the midst of his oppression, in the midst of his persecution, to tell him that Jesus Christ is alive as much as he ever was. And that they can take heart in their oppression as he can take heart in theirs. So I'd encourage you if you're homebound. I would encourage you if you're in quarantine or lockdown to discover what ministry God has for you to do. It's not all about programs. It's not all about meetings. It may just be picking up a pen, writing to a missionary, and sending it. It may be picking up the phone and saying, I'm fine, but I want to know how you are. Whatever that ministry is. But then we come thirdly to verses 12 to 16 and verse 20, to the point that Christianity is a matter of focusing. You see, the end of ministry is not an end in itself. It's possible to make an idol out of ministry so that that's our focus. We have to be ministering. We have to be ministering. But ministry is important only insofar as it resonates the glory of the Lord Jesus. And so now he sees the Lord Jesus in his glory. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Now, as we read the text, we might think, well, he just turned around and began to write what he saw. But if you go down to verse 16, you notice that 
The face of the Lord Jesus was like the sun shining in full strength. So we put ourselves in the sandals of John, and what do we find out? That as he turns around, the brightness of the countenance of this figure in the vision strikes him. And you know what happens, don't you, when you look at the sun face on in a way in which you never intended to do. You have to hide your face. You've got those sparkly little things in your vision, and you have to compose yourself. And I think that's what's going on here. But having composed himself, what does he see? On turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. So, in what follows, he notes, first of all, verses 12 and 13, what Christ does. We know from verse 20 that the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. It's a picture of the fullness of the church. And whereas there was the Old Testament menorah of the one seven-branched candlestick or lampstand, here there are seven lampstands depicting the fact that the church of the New Covenant era is not connected by blood, but connected by the Spirit. But the point which we want to draw attention to tonight is that this one, like a son of man, is in the midst of the lampstands, picturing for us that Christ is in the midst of the church. And what we discover is this, that while the figure in the midst of the lampstands is in human appearance, he's yet been bestowed with great authority and glory and power. The reference goes back 500 years to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So there is Daniel. We've been considering this this past week in the men's Bible study on a Wednesday morning. Looking ahead 500 years. But now when you come to Revelation 1, this is John in the midst of the vision, seeing Christ ascended, having already been given the power, the dominion, the glory, the might, that all should worship him. What an encouragement that is to John. My mind goes to the hymn by Titus Lewis, Mighty Christ, from time eternal, mighty he, man's nature takes what does Christ what Christ does he stands in the midst of the church that's a wonderful encouragement of course there's the flip side of that because you go on to chapters two and three and this Christ who stands in the midst of the church can tell exactly what's right with the church exactly what's wrong with the church and then verse 13 through 15 what Christ is to put it bluntly we could preach sermons on this vision but let me just scan over it. He's incomparable. No matter what domitian the emperor orchestrates against the church, there is only one Lord of glory. And so John describes this figure beginning with the top of the form going down the body. First of all, his majesty. He's wearing this long robe with a golden sash. Some have thought this refers to his priesthood, but it more than likely refers to his kingship, his majesty, his royal authority. And then he looks at the hair, and what does he see? 
The hairs of his head were white like wool, bespeaking his age and his wisdom. And what's interesting here is that the Son of Man is said to have the hair that is white, whereas in Daniel chapter 7, it's the Ancient of Days who has the hair that is white, reminding us that although Christ came from God the Father, he is co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father. And so he has the age, he has the wisdom, as well as the Father and of the Spirit. And then we notice as he makes his way down, the face, the eyes like unto flames of fire, these burning, penetrating eyes which burn through the facade or the veneer that John could have set up before him. Reminds me of a paint stripper. And you know what happens, you who are practical men, you know better than me. You apply the paint stripper to the varnish or, or the paint. And first of all, the paintwork begins to bubble and then it begins to crack and then you start rubbing it away and you begin to see what's under the paintwork. And then you might see uh, Mary loves Tony. Jack was here. You see, it was all covered up by the paintwork, the varnish. But when John stands before this figure with eyes like under flames of fire, penetrating through the facade that he might have set up, he knows that he's in the presence of the holy. And notice what happens next. He's making his way down the human form, but he drops from the eyes to the feet. Why does he drop from the eyes to the feet? Because he has just been struck by these eyes. And if John in the days, uh, Peter in the days of the humanity of our Lord on earth could say before the Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. How much more does John, before this human figure for Christ has taken his humanity to the pinnacle of the universe, yet given a glimpse of his divinity, fall before him. And as he falls, he sees the feet. And what does he see? His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. A number of years ago, I was staying at a home preaching in Wales, and the son had just got engaged. And uh, the fiancé was there, and she went into the father-in-law's study with a brand new carpet, with all his books laid out. He was an elder of the church. And she put the iron scorching in the middle of the carpet, a perfect imprint of an iron, a brand new carpet. They are married, happily married. <laughs> but that's what I think of when I think of these burnished bronze feet, that although for us living in our day we think the enemies of the church are so great, and in John's day, how are we going to overcome Domitian? How are we going to survive as a fledgling church of the New Covenant era? And he sees these feet, able to dissolve every enemy, so that Christ will be the last victor, the only victor standing at the end of the age. And as he's looking at these feet, then he hears the voice with great authority, reminding him that the Lord on high is mightier than the noise 
of many waters. His voice was like the roar of many waters. So what does he see here in this vision? He sees what Christ does. He stands in the midst of his church. He sees what Christ is in his incomparable majesty. And then thirdly, he sees what Christ holds. Verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Well, we know from verse 20 that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Well, who are the angels? Well, the simplest illustration or uh, explanation is that they are the ministers or at least the leaders of the churches and they're in the right hand of the son of man they are in the place of security excuse me for all those who are left-handed the right hand in scripture is the place of security but notice what comparison is made here christ is like the sun shining in full strength they are like the stars and your mind goes back to genesis 1 those wonderful statements, he made the greater light to rule the day, he made the lesser light to rule the night. And so what do we find? On the one hand, the ministers of God are treasured by God. They are in the right hand of God. They are in the place of security, but they do not compare or overshadow the one who is as the sun shining in his strength. So what are we saying then? Christianity is a matter of being. Christianity is a matter of doing. Christianity is a matter of focusing. We are saying that for whatever reason God has ordained the pandemic, when we are faced with quarantine, when we are faced with lockdown, when we are faced with emptier calendars than we had before, God has given us this wonderful opportunity to get alongside with God, to focus on God. Where does he stand? What is the Lord Jesus Christ? And what does Christ hold? He holds the ministers in his hand. And so although the sword, the double-edged sword, comes forth from the mouth of Christ, it comes through the servants of God. It's a word that passes out the sheep and the goats. It's a word, as we've seen recently from Hebrews 4, that digs into our hearts, that opens up our hearts to God. What is the state of our hearts? And so a minister is never called of God simply to pacify the people of God. A minister is called to wield that sword. And so fourthly, then, we come on to Christianity being a matter of experience, verses 17 through 19. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Christianity is a matter of experiencing. Yes, there's doctrine. Yes, there's propositions. Yes, we are called to use our minds to understand the Word of God. But what we are reminded of here in the words of the great 18th century preacher George Whitfield is the Christ that we preach is a felt Christ. And this is John's wonderful consolation in exile, and it's ours too. A felt Christ. What are we talking about by a felt Christ? 
We're talking about the unction of the Holy Spirit coming upon the people of God whereby they have some sense of the greatness of the Lord Jesus, some sense of the compassion of the Lord Jesus, some sense that he is with us, for us, in us, working through us. Notice what it accomplishes. Verse 17a, John fell at his feet as though dead. What is typical of a dead body? It does not move and it does not speak. John is as a dead man, no speech, no movement. And if this Western civilization is going to be recovered, that's what we need. So much chatter, so much controversy, so much noise, so much movement, so much contention. And isn't that what the Apostle Paul also yearned for in Romans? That every mouth may be stopped and the whole world become guilty before God. So that the gospel can be preached. And John here, oh he could have complained about his circumstances. But when he sees Christ in his glory, he falls at his feet as one dead. Still, silent. Which is a contradiction of our own day where only authentic worship. Authentic worship, what is it? Sound and movement. It's a place in authentic worship for stillness and silence. And surely in our frenetic age, this is what we need. Every mouth to be stopped and the world become aware of its need of God. It facilitates worship. Secondly, it facilitates courage. John is afraid and Christ lays his right hand again on me. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades or the abode of the dead. Now, why is John fearful? Well, chiefly because of what he's just experienced. He's in the presence of the holy. Secondarily, because he's exiled. Thirdly, because the future is uncertain. And fourthly, because he is elderly. Yet the Lord Jesus, despite being transcendent, high and lifted up, stoops to him, puts his right hand upon him, says, fear not. Doesn't our national anthem here say that America is the land of the free and the home of the brave? And yet there's a great deal of fear around. Too little fear of God. A lack of reverential awe and too much fear of what is around us. And so one of the things we can pray for as we go through this experience of COVID is that the people of God would know a fresh unction of the Holy Spirit so that we might feel Christ in the midst of our sufferings. And the third thing I felt Christ accomplishes is the facilitation of our obedience, verse 19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. John is now called not to desist from worship, but to get up and to serve worshipfully. And his experience of Christ cleanses and empowers his servant. Evidently, John was obedient. We have the book of Revelation. We have the promise of a blessing for those who read and study the words of this prophecy.
So let me speak to you this evening if you are yet to know this God. This God is unchanged. Jesus Christ is the one who is alive but was dead but is alive forevermore. And someday soon, each one of us is going to be standing before this God. And there will be the Lord Jesus Christ with his eyes like unto flames of fire. And COVID has come quite close to us, hasn't it? When it first started back in March, or it was always the people over there, the statistics on TV. And as time's gone on, oh, so-and-so's got COVID. Oh, and so-and-so died of COVID. So I want to say to you, don't waste COVID. God speaks infallibly through his word, but he also addresses us through providence. And if you are outside of Christ today, let me appeal to you that you cannot afford to go out of this life and to face these eyes like under flames of fire. If Christ in his exalted glory was to penetrate the facade in our lives, what would he see? And so what's the difference between the person outside of Christ and the person who's in Christ? Well, the person in Christ, it's all of grace, says, yeah, I know what you're going to see. And when I stand before you, I, I know I'll see those eyes like in the flames of fire. John, the follower of Christ, did. And all he could do was bow his head and say, it's all true. It's all true. Nothing I could hide from you. Isn't that what we're considering on Hebrews 4? All things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So the only difference between the person in Christ, the person outside the Christ, is that when we stand before this holy God and his son comes to reflect upon our lives with these eyes like unto flames of fire, all we can say is, you lived for me. You died for me. Your shed blood, as we said in prayer at the beginning of the service, it turned away the Father's wrath against me. It turned the throne of judgment into a throne of grace. That's solely why I can have confidence of coming into your presence. And that blood that you shed upon the cross, not only turned away by God's appointment, his wrath against me, but it has covered all my sins so that while I am penetrated by these eyes like under flames of fire, and you know that I can merit nothing to enter into your home, you also know that the clothing that I wear is your righteousness, relying upon your atoning death. But then let me close by speaking to those who are particularly hit by COVID. I came across this wonderful quotation from Tertullian, the second century church father. And he writes this tract called To the Martyrs. And he's addressing those who were imprisoned for the faith. And we trust, pray to God, that persecution won't come to the church 
But what he says to the persecuted is also pertinent to those who've been locked down for months in quarantine, those in elderly people's homes, those who are of fragile health. And this is what he says. Let us drop the name of prison. Let us call it a place of retirement. Though the body is shut in, though the flesh is confined, all things are open to the spirit. In the spirit then roam abroad. In spirit walk about, not setting before you shady paths or long colonnades, but the way which leads to God. As often as in spirit you know your footsteps are there, so often you will not be in bonds. The leg does not feel the chain when the mind is in the heavens. Who knows how this is all going to turn out. But this we know, that God will save his people and he delights to commune with them. No crisis in the providence of God is wasted. Let that be our experience and our comfort. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for its abiding relevance. Thank you, Father, that you speak to us through your word, but we're also conscious that you speak to us through providence. And we pray, Father, that if there are any here tonight outside of Christ or listening in, who have yet to make good use of COVID to turn unto you from their sins or to rest in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. We pray that you would bless this message and this crisis to them. But Father, we also pray for those of your people who are affected by this COVID, those who've been shut in for a long time, those who may have cabin fever, those who may be distressed. Father, help them to be able to roam in their spirits to you and to know that they are not in imprisonment, they are in retirement and that you are well able to meet them where they are to bless this experience to them and their ministry while quarantined that each of us, whatever our circumstances as the people of God, may be Christian, may do the zealous works of Christians may experience Christ in his exalted glory and may fall and worship before you, obeying the call that you've given to us, having been saved, to go on to serve. Glorify your name then and fulfill your purposes and we'll give you the praise both here and unto the ages of eternity come in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.